Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. BizSimply is the all-in-one HR workforce management rotate operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together we want to share strategies and tools to make the industry thrive long term, not just survive. In that process, it became very clear to me that the only way to be successful with that is you have to raise the leadership quality. It becomes the quality of the leadership that you have on board determines whether you are able to implement that whole service profit chain thinking. That is absolutely crucial. And that has a lot to do, we can get into that later, but that has a lot to do with not focusing so much about the task side of their job, but on the relationship. And getting them to understand how do they create the circumstances in which our employees thrive and feel responsible and want to do their best and all the rest of it. That, is, that becomes the leadership job. And that's the foundation of the service property. So that's been the whole red thread. And that comes all the way back then to my first days at the Dongleter. And this is how do we make sure that we're taking care of the little people. This is Mike Hohen. He's a leadership coach with a stellar background as an international operator and CEO in the hospitality industry. He has more than 10,000 hours on the clock as a coach. Since 2001, he has coached and developed hundreds of managers in restaurants, hotels, theme parks, giant laundry companies, and the world's largest facility management company, and many others. I met Mike online some years ago, and we connected instantly on topics like leadership, personal development, and our big shared passion for implementing the thinking behind the service profit chain. He has now become a true friend and colleague of mine, and we often connect to discuss how you can unleash the potential of yourself and your team. In this conversation, Mike takes us on an incredible journey from where he started out as a bellboy to running his the first American restaurant concept in Paris, to running a hospitality business in Cape Town, and eventually becoming a coach for leaders. We dive into his new ideas around collaborating more effectively called play better together, we discuss the importance of psychological safety in teams and how to create a high performance environment. You also learn how Mike keeps on pushing himself to learn and keep a growth mindset. If you like today's episode, it will mean the world to me if you could leave a review of the show on either on our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The better the reviews, the better the guests and ultimately the better the learning is for you. This episode will make you reflect on your leadership and how you can make your team play well together. Enjoy. I have been looking forward, as I always do when I get guests, but this guest today has a very special place both in the podcast journey, but also in, in my heart because Mike and I, we connected some years ago at a carnival, but it must be for pre-pandemic, and Mike has an incredible background and he he's doing principal 
what I also love to do is actually getting the full potential out of human beings so we can make the world a better place. But Mike is also a fellow Dane. So so I was really excited that he finally came back and said, oh, I I'm think I'm ready now. He almost called it shameless self-promotion, but I don't think so. I think this is going to be a great conversation where I think we're all going to reflect a bit on how we actually play better together. So welcome to the, the show, Mike. I'm super excited about today's conversation, as I've told you many, many times. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm, I feel really humble and I'm very honored to, to be on your famous podcast. I think it's fantastic, the work that you do. And yeah, I've been looking forward to it as well. And But I also feel humbled, I must admit. So I'm ready. Good, Mike. So, so I know your story, but the audience... They probably be good to hear because there's a, there's a good reason for why you actually are trying helping people to play better together. But there's a journey, of course, like in anything. So, so what is your journey? What's the story? And how did Mike actually started working with leadership, people, and actually making organizations better? So I have to sort of think how I present this for you in a, in a, in a reason. I have gray hair. I mean, I've been around for a while, so it's been a long journey. And I started very early. So like, like many others in the hospitality industry, I did not enjoy school. I, I, was, I really hated school. I was so bored. I was bored out of my skull. And school didn't really appreciate me either. So I got chucked out of quite a few schools, I think five or something like that. And at the age of 18, which is the legal age in Denmark, where you can actually leave school and much to the consternation of my parents, I left school and it was such a relief. And then I had a sort of list. I took a Sunday paper and I had a list of five possible jobs that, that I could probably apply for. I didn't have a lot of experience or education, so you can imagine they were limited. And the top of that list was a what what we in English call a bellboy, but in Danish it had a it had a fancy name. It was called Vaktmester. And so that sounded, I thought that sounded sort of exotic in some way. And so I applied for this job as a bellboy at the Hotel Dangleter in, in Copenhagen as the first one. And because I knew where it was and I could so I went in there. And as you mentioned, I'm Danish, but I have this I have my my father's British. And so I have this bilingual background and I spoke to them and they were very happy and they took me on straight away. And I started the next day. And for me, this was, it was like, it was like somebody had hit me over the head with a baseball bat. After three days, I had this, I promise you, it was like a revelation. I just went, this is what I want to do with my life. This is, this is it. This is what it's all about. And I was completely thrilled by it. And, and it was a transformation in that sense, because it also transformed that sort of, I had a lot of energy and some of it wasn't always as constructive as it maybe could be. And suddenly this became very constructive. And so I put all my energy and enthusiasm into trying to learn this, what, what's this about? I took all the shifts I could. I tried to get extra shifts with the hall porter and soon I was in reception and that's how, you know, I worked. And so long story short, that was how I got into this. And then I remember very, very clearly that one day I was walking behind the general manager and the front office manager. They were walking in the hall in front of me. I was right behind and I could hear what they were talking about. And they were discussing something about some rooms that guests or whatever it was. And I was walking behind them and I was just going, it's incredible, isn't it? They don't see me. They, they never notice me in any way. I'm just 
you know, there with my suitcases. But if they would turn around and stop and ask me, I could answer that question for them because I speak to the guests and I see how they react to certain. I know exactly what's wrong with those rooms because I hear it and I pick it up. And I made this mental note that one day when I'm going to be a general manager, that was my dream. That was what was very clear in those first weeks that I was, I want to be a general manager. When I become a general manager, I am going to take care of what I then at that time labeled the little people, the small people who are unseen in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was very, very clear for me. I, I still haven't managed to become a general manager in a hotel. I'd still like to do it. Uh, I've done all sorts of other jobs in this industry, but that one I didn't nail yet. And if somebody came and offered me that, I might even still consider going back into it. But that was so that shaped very much my thinking in those years. And fast forward, I then found myself in Paris. Shortly after that, I had a, a, a job as the doorman at the Hotel Bristol in Paris. And then I was promoted to the Liftier. And so I worked the lift, which was a manual lift, an old-fashioned lift in the hotel there, and also ended up in the reception in the in there. And there, more than anywhere, did I understand this thing about the unseen people. Uh, really, when you're the liftier and you're the you're doorman, you are nothing. You are really nothing. But you have the contact with the guests and you all of the rest of it. And so this really sort of entered into my my brain. And then the next big step in my journey was, and it's too, it's too long to explain and nobody's going to believe this, but at the end of 21, I suddenly found myself as the general manager of a Danish-owned restaurant in Paris, which, had, which was an American-themed. It was one of the first American-themed hamburgers, T-bone steaks, and the French were all excited about it because it was this new American style. And first I was the assistant manager, and then the manager was fired, and then I was suddenly a manager, and the owner was in Denmark. And so at the age of 21 and a half or something like that, I had 25 employees and no experience of of any use, anything. I just had to learn. And it it was a formative, it was one of these, again, formative experiences because the feedback was like this. Nobody, <laughs> three yeah. people quit yesterday. Oh, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so it was a really, really steep learning curve. And I spent four and a half, four and a half years in Paris running that restaurant. And a lot of what I've learned ever since, it all came from that period. So hands on mm. understanding how to do that. And then I came back to Copenhagen, also running restaurants for somebody else. And at the age of 27, 28, I decided I wanted my own restaurant. And so I bought my first restaurant. And again, peculiar circumstances, I ended up with four restaurants uh, in a bundle. And I was really, really proud of myself because I'd managed to buy them without actually having any money. So I'd financed them. But I didn't understand a lot about finance and all of that stuff. So I'd financed them at about 16% interest, letters of debt. And I had, a at that time, my bank credit was, I think, 18%. And if I had an overdraft, it was 22, 23, something like that. And after a short while, I realized that I got myself into something that was rather, rather tricky. So I spent the next 10 years pedaling like crazy and uh, running these four restaurants. And I worked 365 days a year. You know the road. It was yeah. just... Yeah, I had a bunch of keys, you know, this size. I did everything. I did the plumbing. I did the cash register. I took the extra shifts. I did the dishwashing when it was something was needed. 
and it was all in there. And at the age of about 36, I suddenly woke up one morning and I went, it's got to be, this is not life. This, this, is, this doesn't work for me. I've got it. This is completely crazy. And I sold everything and I moved back to Paris. And then I spent quite some time sort of wandering around thinking, so what do you do when you're 36 and burned out? <laughs> <laughs> and and so that then developed into again fun circumstances people started contacting me could you help us with this project or could you come and do this for us for three months and so i had developed a sort of a you'd probably call it a consulting business at that time but it was very sort of low-key it was just me helping out from word of mouth people would say get mike to help you with that for three months or whatever and so i found myself suddenly in cape town south africa where again a Danish guy, the same guy that owned the, the original restaurant in Paris, asked me to come and help him because Mandela had just been elected president, apartheid was gone, and he, he had a really good nose for business. He said, tourism is going to boom now, and I want to be in on the ground floor in Cape Town because that's where everybody wants to be and to go, mm. so I want to create a restaurant company in Cape Town. And I want you help, to help me with that. I've already bought a nightclub, a nightclub and two small cafes. And please, could you help me be there for the takeover and then help me for the first three months, just get things rolling, find a GM and get it all set up. Okay, fun, fun thing. So I packed my stuff and my wife and I went off to Cape Town. And after three months, I had to realize I wasn't getting anywhere. So I don't know, Africa is Africa and things take longer time. I don't know. We weren't getting anywhere. And so three months became six months and six months became a year. And then finally we were getting somewhere. And Sunday I was sort of beginning to understand what this was about. And in that process, I wrote him a long letter and I said, so this, this, you're approaching this the wrong way. We can't build our own restaurant. We've tried to create our own restaurants. We don't understand this market. We don't understand how it works. We're putting them in the wrong locations. We're serving the wrong kind of stuff. And, and it's not working. The only thing that works is the nightclub on the beach. We had this huge nightclub called, which is famous, if anybody's been to Cape Town in that period, it was called La Med, and it was on the, on the beachfront. And it was an amazing place. It was completely packed from Friday afternoon till Sunday evening, crowds and crowds of people. And I said, the lesson we can learn from that is that we, what we did with, with that club is we put in what I would call Scandinavian management methods in there, a certain structure, we started counting things and, and, and that sort of stuff. But we also put a sort of a human approach to how we were managing things. And the thing really blossomed, it really boomed. And I said, the only if you want to continue here in South Africa, what you need to do is buy big existing restaurants that have enough turnover, that they can carry decent management. So we can get mm. decent, so you can get decent people to run them, and you put in Scandinavian management thinking around that, and then you're going to blossom. It's going to be, fit. but that's that's my recommendation for you. Here's a list of things you could do, and by the way, I'm going back to Europe now. Thank you very much. And then he called me and said, "This is typical consultant bullshit." He said, "You know, you print this fantastic report, and nowhere in this beautiful report does it say who's going to do it." You say, <laughs> "I'm going to come to Cape Town and do this for you, or what? What did you? What, what's the idea? It's a useless idea." No, if you think you're so smart, he said, "You do it. I'll give you carte blanche." He says, "You have the reporters in front of you. You say one could build a huge turnover in five, six years. You do it." Here's the checkbook. So I'll pay for it. You do it. Mm -hmm. 
So I'd really sort of, I'd promised myself and my wife that we weren't doing any more restaurant business in that sense. But this was really tempting. It was fun. It was a lovely crowd. I loved the people. The climate is absolutely tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we started that process of actually scouting for big establishments. We bought Key 4, which a lot of people who've been tourists in Cape Town also know. We ended up buying Key 4 as well down on the waterfront. We bought these very big restaurants and we went through this process of counting things, making the financial aspects of it transparent. In, in South Africa at the time, <laughs> managers of restaurants didn't know anything except the turnover. They didn't know what, how the finances or the economy was all put together. And, and so there was no transparency. So I put in transparency and accountability and a lot of self-governance. So we ended up at the end of the day with 10 restaurants spread out over a larger Cape Town area or whatever it was. And there was no way I could be in 10 restaurants at the same time. So I had to work with a really decentralized structure. Each restaurant, they were big restaurants, had a manager, and they were in charge. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the big learning. That was a big learning for me. It was another sort of transformational shift for me because it was this, I only had one key, not the big bunch of keys. I only had one job, try and remove obstacles for the others in order for them to do the job. I didn't understand the market. I didn't understand the people. I didn't understand the culture. I could just point and say, I'd like us to go this way. How do we get there? Help me get there. Tell me what we need to do. And it was amazing. It was an amazing thing. And so I think what, so, so, so out of that, out of that five, six year period, something started crystallizing. The first thing that started crystallizing was that I decided in that whole process to do an MBA because I suddenly realized that I was in over my head. I was building a really big business and I thought I, I need to, I need to strengthen my own capacity. And in that process, I came across the service profit gene, hmm. which was just out at that time with 360 pages, dense regression analysis and explanations or not, not a lot of people get through it. And I gobbled it up and I thought, wow, this is actually the ex this, a lot of this I'm already doing. I just didn't know why. And yeah. now I suddenly saw in a bigger context why that this is the sort of focus as people first approach creates that loyalty in the customer base that you're looking for. And that's actually what makes it work. But it then also became very clear for me that you can explain the service profit chain to people very simply. I can do that. I can do it in maybe in 10 minutes. But if, if you really want a good understanding, it takes me an hour to really explain so what is the service profit chain? How does it work? And, and that whole concept. And, but then it's understood. The problem is, then how do you execute it? Mm. Because it's, it's a really nice and really, really solid framework, but it, you need to deliver on it. And in that process, it became really clear to me that the only way to be successful with that is you have to raise the leadership quality. It becomes the quality of the leadership that you have on board determines whether you are able to implement that whole service profit chain thinking. That is absolutely crucial. And that has a lot to do, we can get into that later, but that has a lot to do with not focusing so much about the task side of their job, but on the relationship of their job. Hmm. And getting them to understand how do they create the circumstances in which our employees thrive 
and feel responsible and want to do their best and all the rest of it. That is that becomes the leadership job. And that's the foundation of the, the service profit chain thinking. So that's been the whole red thread. And that comes all the way back then to my first days at the Donuts Air. And this is how do we make sure that we're taking care of the little people? Because if we take care of the little people, they are the ones that make the damn thing run. And so, so that's, that's been my journey, if you like. Yeah, and it's, and well, it's not, it didn't end there. It didn't, sorry, it didn't end there, of course, Michael, because then... Um, exactly. Exactly, because then after, what, what was it, in 2001, I, I, on the, the famous New Year's Eve when we went from into the year 2000, I asked my, my wife at four o'clock in the morning, do you see yourself getting old in South Africa? And then she said, are you crazy? I want to go back to Europe at some point. I mean, we can't stay here for the rest of our life. I said, well... Then we start. Then we need to start thinking about when is it that we go back? Because the more we spend time away from Europe, the harder it's going to be to get back. And and so we took the decision, the very very hard decision. It was really heartbreaking to quit that job and go back to Europe. And the next question was then, so what do you want to do, Mike? Was from mm. my wife. What, what do you want another CEO job like that? And I was going. So what did I really enjoy while I was a CEO? Well, what I really enjoyed was that leadership development part, because I very soon realized I could hire people to all, all the other stuff that was going on. But when I sent these managers that I had, I sent them to courses. We could send them to one day leadership course, two day leadership course. They came back with these beautiful folders that said leadership module one, two and three. And I could ask them questions and they were they were they had more knowledge, but they didn't do it. They didn't change anything. And so in that whole process, when I was there, I started sort of experimenting with, so what does it actually take for grown-ups to change, to actually learn something and implement it? And then I started developing my own leadership programs and I started doing my own teaching. And because I found that was actually the most effective way of using my own time. And that then became the foundation. When I went back to Europe, I then started saying, so what have I really enjoyed? I really enjoyed the leadership development part. I thought that was fun. And, and I really shifted something. It really made a change. And so I decided to create this flagship leadership program that I'd run in my own class, which I call Grow Leadership, based on the Whitmore model, you know, coaching model of Grow. And then I, we came back, we started in Denmark, naturally enough, and I would, would walk around with my, with my bag, I think for over a year, trying to get people to buy into a concept where instead of having leadership development as a one-day, two-day, three-day workshop, to have something that actually runs over 12 weeks. Because if you want people to change anything significantly, you need time. Yeah. Nobody changes because they've watched a video or heard something or read a book or something. It takes some kind of time. It needs time and it needs reflection and it needs some kind of interaction with your workplace. So there has to be this sort of notion, what I'm learning just now, how does that apply to what I'm doing tomorrow? And when I do that tomorrow, how do I then, what, what are the results that I then get from that? How can I learn from that? And so I built up this, this leadership program, which had a component of a startup workshop in the traditional sense, but then combining it with logbooks. So I require everybody who work on that, that kind of program to submit a logbook every Friday afternoon. What was your focus this week? 
what did you learn? What are you going to focus on next week? Mm -hmm. And then I give them feedback on that. They do that for 12 weeks. And on top of that, I have put them together in triads. So then every other week, I would have a coaching session face-to-face -face where we would sit three of them and me and have a session around. So what are they learning and how they're implementing it? So they both learn from me, but they also learn coaching by me modeling me coaching them. So they start understanding how does that work when you when you're trying to coach somebody to get better. And then we have this effect that that very clearly they started asking each other questions that I would never have thought of because they are in it and they know exactly what the sore points are. And sometimes I would go, wow, why didn't I think of that? So obvious things, but they were really good at that. And so that has become my sort of my flagship. That is, that's my thing, if you like. And I've been running that Grow Leadership Program for hotel chains, for big amusement parks, all over Scandinavia, other places in the world as well. I've been to Dubai with it and places like that. And so it's, and that's, so that's what I do. And as a, as a byproduct, you could say of that is that I then also have a lot of coaching clients that either are come as a result of that, somebody says, I'd actually like to continue this conversation with you. Could you help me with that? Or somebody says, I have a colleague who went on your course. Could we have a chat about something? And so we, we do that. That can be anything from a one-off to a structured program over some kind of time. But that's essentially what it does. And it's all rooted in there's a red thread all the way back. And, and that's also what I... And I've always been fascinated about that because one of the things that we really quickly, you know, theoretically we connected really well on the service profit chain because I haven't yes. met many in my journey as well that have geeked so much about this service profit chain and the power of it. I've used it myself. I was running restaurants and multiple restaurants like you because just had to decentralize. I didn't have the the money to have a big policing squad in in an office to go and run these restaurants it had to decentralize yeah. and i have yeah, to make yeah, better yeah. leaders on sites because that yeah. was the key to the success and and it was also in university one of the professors gave me good to grade and the service profit chain in the hand so you should write a dissertation that became good to grade first and then i found out oh i actually have to implement these concepts and i need something a bit more <laughs> tangible and that's again service profit chain there's a lot of case studies in there so if you haven't read that yet and even though it's a book i think it's from late night 70s isn't it 78 i think the book is from yeah, and the studies no, probably the service profit chain actually came out in 94. 94, the book, yeah. And I think but the studies yeah, the goes all out. back to the, the 70s where James L. Heskis and started yeah. Howard. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can go yeah, back absolutely. and find papers. That's very complex, yes. as you say. Yes. And you probably have to be a geek. You don't have to write, read those. You can just go to, to Mike's website. He's helped you simplify it. But what is the mission now, Mike? Because in the early days, it's about getting the little people seen and heard. And you said that's followed you too, but what is the, the, the big mission right now? What, what is the, the change you want to see in the world and with the work you do and get you up every morning? <laughs> it's still, it's still to connect it because it's still connected to the little people because in that sense, what is it that makes the world run around? What, what makes life fun for the little people? It, it's all about leadership. And so the, 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 the driver of the service 
industry for me is this notion of, of understanding this notion of what is leadership really all about. Because there is a, the, the, the industry has a tendency to be a little bit skewed in my opinion, because if you think about it, if you're working in a restaurant, what is the waiter who gets promoted to assistant head waiter or whatever, supervisor or whatever, and the same thing, assistant sous chef in the kitchen. It's somebody who's good at getting things done. Mm. It's somebody who's good at the tasks. And so whoever is good at the tasks shines from a management, top management point of view. Oh, it's so nice with Jill because she really gets things done. So Jill gets promoted to supervisor. Because she, and she doesn't get promoted to supervisor because of her relationship skills, but because of her task execution skills. And if she's really good at the task execution, she gets another promotion. Yeah. And so we have, a, we have a tendency to skew the whole organization, organization towards an orientation around people who are really good at executing tasks. It's, a, it's an industry also. It's a, we, we have firefighters all around. We can really get things done. And we need people who are good at that and structured at that, but we forget, funnily enough, in the hospitality industry, which is all about relationships, we forget that there is a relational aspect to getting that, to getting things done. And so people, so we we, you and I have had many discussions about this whole notion about the great resignations and why people don't, don't want to work in the industry and all the rest of it. And at, when we really sort of analyze that and what it boils down to is people, especially this younger generation that's coming into the industry now, they don't just want a job. They want a relationship with their job. But you don't have a relationship with the building. You have a relationship with the people who are in the building. And primarily, you have a relationship with your immediate supervisor. So when we look at resignations and all the rest of it, it comes out loud and clear in all the surveys. The primary reason, 85%, 90% of the reason, true reason why people leave a job is because they don't get on with their immediate supervisor. There's a friction mm. and they decide to leave. And I think there's a, so, so this comes out, it also comes out, you know, when we look at the Gallup engagement surveys and all of this that keep on year after year telling us that we only have 15% engaged workforce and all the rest of it. And I think if we're, I don't know very much about it, but if you're canning sardines or building bikes in China or something like that, I don't know, maybe you can come to work every day and not be engaged. Do the job, go home according to spec, you know, do the job according to spec, go home, and that's fine. But you cannot run or you cannot operate in the hospitality business and not be engaged because the difference in experience for the customer is like night and day. Somebody who just has a job, here's your beer or whatever it is, and somebody who is enthusiastic and who is engaged and who wants to do their best for your experience. Always. It's just, it's like chalk and cheese. And so we've, we've got to get engagement in. And so, so for me, it's all about the engagement. So many people feel or sometimes misunderstood, ah, oh, Mike's a softy and it's all about the small people. No, it's business. It's hardcore business. If we get that right, the business thrives. Yeah, and, and you're so spot on because if I go back and say where relationships, if you gave scores, if I had my own score always from one to ten, was low, it was very hard to get the hard things working, the bottom yeah. line, because we couldn't collaborate in a yeah. healthy way to achieve that. We were actually looking for ways to 
get rid of each other or make each other look bad you know and that becomes that whole political game we also call it politics that's a nice way to wrap it in that we are nasty to each other i normally say and we actually not there for the greater good of the course we are there for our own sake and that's also yes. what it comes down to yeah. and it'd be really yeah. fascinating mike to follow you when you, you you've been on this journey and it's like it's you know and it's probably you see it the same way it's unwrapping from the early days at Dangletair in copenhagen to where you spout the little people and now to the service profit chain being the ceo of a very big complex business and then now seeing a world that becomes more and more complex and now you've developed yes. this new concept which i really wanted to talk about as well like plays well with others and it's it's early days but you already had some learnings around you know that yes. tell tell us a bit more of that because i think it's fascinating it's so simple but it's fascinating and so spot on and actually touched on what we just talking about now the whole relationship aspects of life and work yeah, exactly. It ties in, you know, it's a, it, it, it all ties into this. So I was, I was doing some reflecting. I was going through the notes that I take after my coaching sessions with the people that I've been coaching for the past year or so. And I was going through them to sort of see what, what's, what is the red thread? Is there, is there a common denominator in these problems that people would like to be coached around? And suddenly it came very clear to me, it's all about relationships. Nine out of 10 of the people that I've been speaking to and helping and working with have some challenge, which is relational. It is about a boss. It's about colleagues. It's about employees or whatever it is. But it's always, I would like to do this and it's not working and I'm frustrated. And what are we going to do about that? And so it struck me that this is actually, and then I started sort of researching a little bit more about it and I suddenly realized this is a huge problem. Hmm. This is actually the, it is, maybe it is the problem out there in the sense that we, when we also talk of this big, the big resignation. So why is it that people, yes, they leave their, their job because of their immediate supervisor, but what's the problem with the immediate supervisor? It's a lack of collaboration. It's a lack of seeing the other. It doesn't see me in that sense. And so what is and and then it's also frustration that a lot of people feel i'm really good at my job but when i try and do my job well i feel i can't do it i get sabotaged because this people these people aren't collaborating or these people are ignoring me or i don't i don't feel i get heard when i want to do this or that or the other and so in that sense you when you have that feeling that you're not that whatever it is that you're good at doesn't actually you can't do it in the best possible way, you become disengaged. Well, what's the point? Okay, so I just come to work and I'll do my best, whatever I can. But I mean, why put in a lot of effort if we can't do it? And so it's it struck me that in some senses, I also have this feeling, you know, in some ways that people are tired of being told that they need to work more on their leadership because we've been talking about it for God knows how long and it doesn't seem to make a big dent. And so I was also thinking, so what's a different framing of the whole problem here? Let's try and frame this in a different way and say, if we can frame this in a different way and start talking about how do we get better at working well with each other, regardless of positions? Because in a highly complex world, the more complex world that we are working in, the more important the collaboration becomes. Collaboration becomes a competitive advantage. It, it is the way that you, you, your organization suddenly can react 
fast. We talk a lot about agile and, and responding to changing circumstances and VUCA worlds and all the rest of that stuff. But what is it that's actually needed in order to, to cope with fast changing environments? It's collaboration. It's instant. You know, without going through a lot of rigmarole or formalities, whatever it is, I grab the phone, we have this problem, what are we going to do? I'll help you fix your boom, boom, bang, done. And that makes the world go around. But if it suddenly bogs down into silos and competencies and responsibilities and blame and all the rest of it, well, then we get stuck. And then we don't actually achieve what we probably could. So I've decided now that I really want to focus over the next period on, it's going to be my big focus, is I want to, I want to drive this agenda and so say we need to start a conversation around how do we collaborate better? What does it mean to collaborate? What is my own responsibility in collaboration? Do I, do I know myself well enough? Do I understand where it is that my strengths and weaknesses are? Do I have that self-awareness? Do I have the empathy to understand how other people function? And am I concerned enough to ask? So, Michael, how are you today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what do you need? <laughs> and so, so to what extent do we do that? And so that's what I've been putting together. And I'm sitting here in the, down here in the south of France, and I'm putting all this together. And I'm, I'm going to bring it out in, in September uh, in various forms and ways. But it's going, to be, it's going to be my next sort of main agenda over the coming years. I can see that because I, and I can also feel when I start talking about it, that I get these, like you, uh, nodding and going, yes, I, I know what you're talking about. This is actually a problem. It is yeah. a problem. Yeah, I think I think we've been, you know, because I also still works with a lot of founders, CEOs, meet them in connection with my own business, Paul's Kitchen, and often they, you know, when they ask me for advice, it's often around how they build the organization and the culture bit, and and as I was preparing for this, and we've been talking the last year, I just it just became very clear to me, actually, the biggest challenges collaboration and getting the team to work well together it's not hiring the right competences and getting the job description and the accountability piece that's really technical but it's really that more emotional it's like a sixth sense they need to develop and my question that started to come around also a question i want to ask you now mike is that so i think we are aware as leaders this is what we struggle with but why don't we why don't we do anything about it? Because it's not a new challenge. Go but all the way back to the service profit chains talks about your ability as a leader to raise yourself and raise the people yeah. below you and actually collaborate to make the different parts of the the service profit chain work. So what what is the what is your reflection on that? My reflection on that is that it doesn't happen first of all because we're not really aware that it requires something of us that is not something that just happens automatically. Hmm. So Peter Block, the author that I really appreciate also, he, he wrote somewhere about social social contracting. So he has a whole sort of quite academic explanation. But that's what it's essentially about. It's about learning social contracting. So we need before we start any project, any meeting, any week, any year, anything where we are where we're going to do something together, we need to start off by doing some social contracting. We need to agree on why are we doing it? What is important? What do we need? All of this kind of stuff. And we need to spend time doing that. 
And the problem is that we all feel we're too busy. So we want to move straight into here's the project plan. This is the action plan. Now go do it. And then as we get further along that path, we suddenly things come unstuck and we get bogged down. And then all that good time we saved by not doing our social contracting is completely wasted out the window in bad results. If we'd only spent a little bit more time doing that in a sensible way, we would have got, we would have fixed it. I had a lovely example a few years ago. I'll put this in here and you could, I don't know if you know, but I had a group of a building company. They were building a big school up in Denmark and they were horribly behind on their time schedule. And the guy called me and said, I have a feeling that this is not working because we basically are not collaborating optimally and we're blaming each other and we're going to be fined and all the rest of it. And we're so bogged down and I really don't know what to do about it. He said, the leader, I'm, I'm, I'm really stuck. Can you come up and work with us for us? I said, I can't because I'm really busy. I'll tell you what, next weekend I was actually planning to be home. We can meet in Nice. If you come down on Friday evening, we can work Saturday and Sunday morning and we can see what we can do and try and see if we can help you sort it out, make a plan so you can get forward. And then we spent all of Saturday, um, I won't go into it, take all the time, but basically all of Saturday, social contracting, getting to know each other a little bit better, doing completely basic sort of profiles of each other, negotiating, working out, all of that. And he kept sort of, we have to talk about the time frame and the plan that we're supposed to do. And now you're doing all this kind of social feel-good work. And when are we, when are we going to talk about the, the project plan that we're behind? I said, leave it. I'll get there. And so we worked all the way through Saturday. And then we went out and had dinner in these together in the evening. And the next morning they came in and I just stepped back and said, and now we need to start working on this part. And then they fixed it. And they fixed it in two and a half hours. Because suddenly we had a different understanding about our relationships, our needs, about what we were doing. I didn't get involved in that. Pro I don't know anything about constructing at school. And, but I had created a container for them where suddenly they were able to collaborate. And then I just stepped back. And we finished before time. And he was just, how did that happen? Well, it happened because we took the time to work out with each other what it is we're trying to do and how we want to do it with each other. And that saves us so much time in the other end. It's super interesting because I'm also, you know, I'm a big fan of Singermans and I've had Ari, yes. the, the founder on yes. the podcast, yes. and they, yes. they're yes. very much on the, you know, the, the social contract. And he's a big fan of Peter Block as well. And he talks about, you know, you need before you start anything, any size of project, you need to have a shared vision and you need to stay in that stage yes. as long as it takes to get, you know, not agreement, but alignment and understanding of yes. each other's concerns and yeah. expectations, because then you can work on from there and there. And in that way of working, because you need to be together, what happens is yeah. that you really build this social strengths and you talk about other things as well, but then suddenly they become a human being to you, not a colleague, not somebody you yeah, execute. Exactly. Right, exactly. Are you familiar with the Drexler Sibit team high performance model, the V? You come across that? Yeah, tell tell us a bit more about that. I've heard about it, but I'm not. You probably yeah. know much. So more it's than it's I really do. good. It's it's a really nice piece of work that Drexler Sibit have put together. I can send it to you at at some point. But, but the basic thing is what they what they took was some 
psychologists, behavioral psychologists have determined that there are four questions that we all ask ourselves when we go into any new kind of situation with other people. And the four, we don't say them out loud, but they are very, very present in us. The first one is why. Why am I here? Why is this important? Why is, what are we doing here? What is it? And if we don't get that question answered, then we, then we sit in confusion and we don't really get very much further. Because then we're already confused. The next thing we ask is, who am I doing this with? Oh, I'm doing this with Michael. I'm doing this my interview with Michael today. Well, that's nice. I know Michael. I feel comfortable with Michael. Not a problem. Maybe it was somebody who could have been somebody completely different. I didn't know. It would be a different we space. It would be a different relationship. I would have to think a little bit about, do I need to research that? Do I need to think? Do I need to state anything that's important for me? How do I negotiate that? So there's a whole thing that needs to be in, put in place around the who part. And once the who part is clear, then we need to decide. So, and then I need to understand, so what is it that we're doing in the term of roles? What is my role? What is your role? And what is the goal for what, for what we're trying to do? And then we move into the how part. How are we actually, we can start, how are we actually going to approach it? And then we can start making a plan. And so it has this, this V, it has this V shape in a sense, because you start in uncertainty, and then you move closer and closer to certainty. At the bottom of the V, you have the how. And mm. that is what I hit Saturday evening with the group of builders. We, when we got to the bottom of that because it became clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And I follow exactly that model. That's a model I always use. Why, who, what, and how. And then once that was established, then we start moving back towards uncertainty because now we make a plan and that starts getting a little more uncertain. Then we start executing, it gets very uncertain. And then we deliver and we're finished. And then and we're all the way back into uncertainty because then we say to ourselves, now we've built the school, what now? Mm. And that's the, that I call that the what now blues. So you've had that if you've been studying for an exam for a long time or <laughs> built something fantastic and you finished it and then you go, oh, so what now? And so you now you need to find a new why. So you need mm. to go back in a sense, and think, so why would I do this again? Or do so, what do I want to do tomorrow? But in the, in the essence, we go through this V model, this uncertain, certain flow, oscillation the whole time. So every day we go to work, we need to understand why do I go to work? And then we do the whole thing. And then when the evening comes, we go, okay, that was today. And then we ask ourselves, do I really want to come back tomorrow? Maybe, <laughs> depends mm. how that ended. <laughs> So there's another, that's a whole other question, but so we have pre-shift meetings. That's a really good thing. So we should also have post-shift meetings because we should clear up the day yeah. before we send people home with a bad feeling because they had a rough customer or somebody who was nasty to them, or we suddenly had a discussion, you and I, in a heated moment, and I shouted at you that you're whatever. And then if I can clear that up in the evening before I go home, and we can look each other in the eye and say, I'm sorry about that, Mike. I didn't mean that I'm a hothead, sorry and we can clear it up, then it's much easier for you to come back to work next day. But if not, you're going to say in the morning, oh, I've got to have to work with Mike again. And the way he was behaved yesterday, I can't fix that. He is such a hothead. And that's super interesting because now actually what you are giving people here is actually a way to get started as well to work. Exactly. To get a 
better because this is like yes. yeah there's a framework here and it's probably going to feel awkward the first time you're doing this as a lead a bit like cycling the first time you do that you're not yeah. you're probably going to tip over and you're going to miss some yeah. things in the process but actually you have like a muscle you have to use that process yeah. because exactly. it works and actually my own learnings but i, I never I, I, i've heard about the direction model when i went to university in strategy and leadership but i never really used it myself in principle i've been doing that and the times where i forgot the you know the, i called it the reflection of the day which i do now constantly myself but actually where we need to start at the end of the day to talk about all the things we missed then we first we celebrate all the things we really succeeded at and then you know what is it that we need then to move on from tomorrow or if there's been some kind of conflict which there will be in a good leadership team there will be lots of conflicts yeah. and you just have to say sorry sometimes because sometimes you also yeah. no matter how right yeah. you are the way you deliver it, it's maybe not the right way and then it becomes more about that next day that the other one feels hurt or angry about that and you haven't put that away and that just then keep on building yes. in a way coming back to working well exactly. together yeah but it's hard if it's very hard to do this i i think yes yeah but if you think about it michael there's a there's also this notion that 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 we talk a lot about psychological safety or emotional safety mm. if you do the v model rigorously as part of your way of working then you're already 80 percent there in establishing a psychological safe space it's such an important tool in doing that so many things fall into place if you do that yeah and psychological safety you talked about that a lot in, in other stuff you do but also in connection with this like i guess that's the foundation that we actually you know baseline we feel yes, that this is a safe you... environment i can actually contribute yes. i can say what i think and all those things yes. and that and you say if you do this journey you have seen that the b model that actually that's the outcome that will come yeah. eventually yeah and and it's and, and it's i teach this to chefs i say to chefs that's how you start your day you start your day with the v model mm. get everyone together you set the scene what's important today why are we here Who's here? Well, and then you do a check-in with the team around you and you go, so give me, how's life? Michael goes, life is fine. Joe goes, mm -hmm, didn't sleep so well because I have a one-year-old and she screamed all night. Okay. And so we go the whole way around and now we understand, now we've all checked in doing the who part. And in that sense, now I know how I'm going to put people on the different stations today. I'm not going to put Jim out in the front because he hasn't slept all night. I'll put Michael out front. He seems he's in a good, he's in a good mood today, so he can go out front. So already there, I said, now I can define the roles and the, and the goals. Who's going to do what and how are we going to do it? And the more, I, the more focus as a leader I have on the first part of the V model, the more I can retract. And it means that when we get to the bottom, when they start discussing the how, you can take your foot off the pedal. Let them work out how they want to do it once you have set the scene. So how would you like to solve this? I, this is where we want to go today. How do we do that? And then I guess you have to step back and have the patience yeah. because as leaders often you, you would know the answer, all the, the steps that need to be taken. You go from driving the process all the way down to observing as you move into the next phase. And then you intervene if you have to intervene, but you try not to, you try and let them work it out. Or you coach, 
you ask questions, but you try and stand, you're not driving it, they are driving it. Hmm. I was thinking about that, you know, you know, how do you get, you know, you, you may be your leader listening into this and thinking, I really want to do this, but how do I actually get my team behind this as I go on this journey? They might think that we are doing something that's a bit you know, awkward. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Is he wants, does he or she want to control my mind? You know, there'll be lots of people who have different thoughts about that. You know, the, the reason why not it's to do it. The model part of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we, when we work with coaching, we always run into this, this challenge that people will have a belief. I can't do that. I'm not good at that. Or that doesn't work. Or I can't have that conversation with my boss. And so, and that's the same thing here. People will have some kind of belief that's too time consuming. It's too touchy feely, uh, blah, blah. I've heard it all. Mm. So in these situations where we're trying to change what people believe, that's really hard. And the only way we can do it is we have to try and design relatively small, safe experiments for them to try out. Try a little step, try this part of it, or try just having this conversation, or try this. And once they have that, then, then we need them to, as you and I talked about previously, we need to reflect. So what happened? Was it a catastrophe? No, it wasn't actually. It actually was okay. Yeah, it was also. It was actually okay. You know, and so, so the only way to get people on board something which they fundamentally believe or are skeptical around, believe doesn't work, or they're skeptical around it, is to try and design some experiments that are safe for them to get into, and which will prove to them that it actually works, or that it could be a way forward. So you start. It's like getting a, a, a tooth out, you know, rock, you start rocking the tooth a little bit and suddenly, bomb, they say, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that. It, it does. And, you know, in that process, so one of the first things, very, very often I have the scenario when I'm coaching somebody, they say, well, you know, I have this problem with my boss and he doesn't or she doesn't see it my way or blah, 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 blah. And so I try and teach people. And this is also the, the first way into better collaboration. And that is to learn to state your needs. When we get frustrated mm. with other people, it's because we have some needs that are trodden, that are pressed underfoot, that are disregarded. And that us, frustrates us enormously. The problem is other people cannot guess always what our needs are. So we need to learn to express. And this is not just in the work situation. This goes for our relationships with our spouses and everything else. It's really the key to building strong relationship is to be good at expressing your needs. And so what I always try and ex explain to these people what I'm coaching is have a conversation with your boss about this problem. And they say, no, it can't be done. And he's going to tear my head off. Or as I said, the conversation goes like this. When this and this happens, I... It doesn't work for me because bom, 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 I need this in order for it to work better for me. Can we have a conversation around that? And so if you go to somebody and say, I think you're an idiot because you always do this and it pisses me off or whatever it is, then you don't get anywhere with anybody. But if you go to somebody and say, you know what, when I when we're working like this and you do that, then it doesn't really work for me because I can't get my deadline or I can't do this or I can't express myself, whatever it is. I need something else. I need more space. I need a smile. I don't know what it is from you. Can you help me with that? And even the most difficult person 
is actually thought up by that. It's really, really difficult to sit there and say, no, that's your problem. Mm. Because all of us go, yes, of course, I, I didn't realize that was a problem for you. Of course, I can fix that easy. We can start 10 minutes early. We'll just do it like this. So I'll wait. For, you know, it's very often, very simple. And so I time and again have exactly this, this feedback from the people that I had that conversation with my boss and it was fantastic. And we got so much thought and I didn't realize and she didn't and she had never understood that I had a problem with that. And I don't know why I've never told her. That was really stupid of me. And now we've got a completely different relationship. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it comes back to in principle, as yes, human being, I think, Mike, we, we actually want to serve others. And that's all about serving leadership. Yes, we do. It's all about, and in principle, we all want, most people want yeah. to do good and they want yes. to serve others yes. in principle. But sometimes if they don't know what needs they need to serve, you're absolutely right. It goes to all aspects in life where we almost it's think it's a, it's a conflict to talk about. But actually, people then say, oh, I'm a relief. Now I know exactly what bottom to t touch. Yeah. not to to avoid any conflicts on that area yeah. and and then exactly. they do it and then it doesn't mean that conflict will be avoided all the time but you'll minimize it because it's actually conflicts that destroys the relationship yes. and empty the, exactly. the the emotional bank account and it's generally due to ignorance you know yeah. people aren't aware that there's this problem with that we're all absorbed by ourselves essentially you know so what I have to get this done, this task, whatever it is. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Not aware that somebody else has a different aspect or needs something or whatever it is. It's very simple. Yeah. On, on, on the journey in the last couple of years, Mike, where, you know, you like anyone else have, you know, seen a world that's been lots of turmoil, pandemics. Now we have living cost crisis around the world. Yeah. Lots of people talk about the unknown and the complexity of what we and the uncertainty yeah. the word used before what what have yes. you been your most significant learning in, in those two years is that actually that we we really need to focusing on collaborating no. or is there some kind of other insights within that couple of years it's all it's all fiddled into each other whatever you call it intertwined but i think the most significant learning for me this past period has been when I started understanding Dave Snowden's conniving model about the difference between what is complicated and what is complex. And I, it, it, that has been a huge, a hard journey for me because I've just come to, and this fits into the whole thing about the relationships and all the rest of it. But I think we have a, we have a, for many, many years, I was, my in my understanding, I may have been stupid or naive, or I always thought that complex was just complicated that was more complicated than normal, you know. Mm. And I never understood that complex is a completely different kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. And so the sense that the complicated world are things unknowable and predictable. And we can use engineers and doctors and all sorts of good people to work out how to do things, build things and do computers and all the rest of it. But in the complex world, it's not knowable. We don't actually know what's going to happen because there is no, there's no history to go back on. That's, that's cool. And then the, the next step in that is when we then look at from, from a systems point of view of thinking, that we know that so mechanical systems are predictable and stable. Organic systems are unpredictable and unstable. 
and human beings are organic systems. Mm. And so, and they are unstable because they're always going from one state to another. So they are, now I'm happy, now I'm sad, now I'm hungry, now I'm tired, now I'm enthusiastic, now I'm this. And we're always fluctuating, oscillating in different forms. And so we're all these sort of unstable entities. And then realizing that when we then sit and go in HR, we go, if we do this, this, and this, then they are all going to do that. It's not true. It's just not true. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Yeah. Maybe some of them will do it sometimes. But that's as good as it gets. Yeah, in their own time. Yes, in their own time. And so this whole notion that as we move into complexity, being comfortable with standing in the unknown and in trying to work out probing and trying to find, so what's happening just now here? What is happening with this team just here? And listening and trying to get more clear. And this comes back to the whole, so, so how do we deal with complexity? It's relational. We tackle complex when, when, the, when, when, the, when things go belly up or epidemics hit or wherever it's, it's the strength of the relationships that is able to tackle the complexity. Because it's not a building, it's not a computer that can be programmed. You can, you can look up somewhere and you can, if you're expert enough, you can work it out. You cannot work it out. And I think that fascinates me because the more I look around, the more I go, whoa, are we in for a ride? Because this complexity, that is increasing. Yeah. And that's a challenge. And I guess also it's because people are really struggling with themselves, managing themselves through this complexity, both in you know life and at work, because it's just yes. thrown at you at such a speed, which we all have heard yes. about before. It goes back decades of strategy thinking. You talked about VUCA before yes. and so on. But again, now it moves so fast because of also technology really yes. changes the, the game here in my yeah. view as well which brings lots of good things and there's positive things with ai there's also the downsides yes. but we as humans have to yes. really really move so fast and thereby yes. we forget actually how to manage that this actually goes back to yeah. the quality of our so relationship we have to, we have to be become much sorry michael we have to become much better at what i call complexity awareness understanding what is knowable and what is not. Mm. And as soon as we move into something that is complex, we need to take it, we, we need a different toolbox. And we need to approach it in a different way. And that's where we have a, a habit, especially in the Western world of going, we bring in this expert and we bring in this consultant and this and they know and they're going to fix, but they're not going to fix in that sense, because it's not knowable. Mm. It's not predictable. What's going no. on? They can in a lot of situations. Yeah, they can create a platform for getting more clarity if they yes. facilitate the process yes. in a really. So good we way. have to stick our finger in. We have to have conversations. We have to ask people what's going on. We have to try and digest. We have to reflect and observe, and then in the moment we can say, "I think I don't have the answer, but I think this is going this way." Oh, okay, it's going, on. and that goes for all this talk about when we talk marketing as well. Go, oh, we're going to make a marketing plan and it's going to go like this. No, it's not. It's much too complex. Yeah, it's maybe uh, going this direction if we're lucky. Yeah, and rarely, rarely, you know, it's, it's important to make plans, but rarely it goes 
as you thought they would. And with no, and also not. often you make the plans too complex actually to, to implement. There are too many you don't... variable factors out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, and as you then start to work through those plans, you find out actually we need to simplify the, the marketing plan very much. And yeah. I've just been through the last year of launching a new product where our first exactly. draft marketing plan, marketing mix, it was insane. Like when I look at it now, I just think, what the hell were we thinking? Because uh, <laughs> we need, we need humans exactly. to do that. Yeah. And now we're down to one oh, activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to get people to taste the product and meet the people behind the business. That's the, the marketing strategy. That's so simple. And also, it's so, you yeah. know, it's easy to execute on a way. And it's a food product, so people need to taste it. What is What are you doing to get yourself going every day because you've been on this journey and you can hear from your story you started out with that you've been like improving yourself all the time to make yourself better you know you have to re you have these pivotal moments where you really have a shift in your mind learning but how do you actually approach every day because it's not like it doesn't happen you know on new year's eve it's like a, a continuous process you know what do you do to do we all do different things to to keep our self on the right path <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I wish I had some really intellectual, insightful, wow answer to that. You know, I muddle through, like I think maybe some other people also do. I, I hear all these gurus, they have the morning routines and all this. I have a, my, my, my basic go-to savior of, so as not to go insane is that I meditate every day. And that is a really, really important part of my, so, and that's where I get to sort of settle down and and gain perspectives on things. And and then I try and get out on my bike in the morning and, and go for a quick run. And and then and then I I get into the day and it's it's not as structured as I maybe would like, but it's it's complex. And so it's it's seeing where things go. And I'm incredibly curious the whole time. I'm constantly reading and doing stuff like that and listening. Always. It's I'm like a hoover in that sense. Because I think the world is so fascinating, yeah. really, really fascinating. It's really interesting, Mike. You're trying to, anyway, in a, in a, in a complex world, the most value, it's trying to take control of the morning. And that's the same I do. I have a, lot, a couple of rituals, yeah. but if I just do a couple of them, maybe you don't do all five, <laughs> but do a couple of them, I know I'm yes. in a good state to actually face that yes. complex day because you can have a plan, yes. but the day probably is not going to go the yeah. way you were thinking it's going to go. And if you can if lean control into that, the first hour, we've already done pretty well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, all sorts again, then you, then you're preparing yourself for whatever happens, you know, that yeah. difficult conversation you didn't expect or that yes. thing that happened, you, yeah. why the hell did that happen? I, and then you can much more be in that moment Absolutely. actually, and ask the right for questions. Me, builds resilience. I mean, I'm, I'm much more capable of coping with chaos if i stick to that very simple morning routine of preparing myself for the day in that sense that's for me really important when i don't do that because something happens or whatever it's very mm. rare then i'm much easier knocked off get irritated and stuff like that yeah and it's the small things that really matter so absolutely yeah <laughs> what we're coming to an end Mike, and I, I always ask this question to people and i'm really looking forward to hear you answer this so what is your you know your top advice the advice you want to give leaders out there that wants build a business as a, a force for good what is that <laughs> you're not going to be surprised <laughs> you've got to focus much much more on building the relationships it's all about the relationships peter senji had this beautiful model years ago must be 20 years ago where he said that the 
quality of our relationships drives the quality of our thoughts. And the quality of our thoughts drives the quality of our actions. And the quality of our actions drive the quality of our results. And the quality of our results drive, we're back to the top of the circle, the quality of the relationship. So when things are going well, we pat each other on the back. Yeah, we did this. We're good and all the rest of it. And then the relationship actually is strengthened. Mm. When things are going wrong, we get into a negative spiral and it just goes down. It was your fault. No, it was his fault. And all the rest of it, it goes like that. So by being much more aware of the quality of those relationships, because we all know it, you know it. We we have on our agendas today, you, you and I are going to talk together. And the first, what's the first talk? Oh, it's Michael. It's Mike. We're gonna. That's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. We'll have a good chat. And there are other meetings on our agenda. We go, oh God, that's going to be a long morning. <laughs> <laughs> and and so we cannot we cannot say that it doesn't affect. Of course it does. The quality of the relationship determines how things are going to go. It's not just skills and all the rest of it. So that is the one thing that we need to get. So Dale Carnegie, we're all the way back. Yeah. <laughs> all the way back. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. And, and I was not surprised you would answer that. So, so I think there's lots of <laughs> there's lots of good stuff for people to either reach out to you or you know go and check out your website. We'll come back to it in a second. But you know, Mike, there's so much we could have talked about. It's like, is there like one thing you wished I've asked you I didn't ask you, and what would that be, and what would the answer be? What is the one thing that's missing when we talk leadership development? Mm-hmm. That's the question. And from my perspective, the one thing that's missing that we seem to sweep under the carpet, we won't confront is that we don't talk about vertical development enough. We don't really want to face it. There's this whole notion that it's not enough to acquire more skills. We need to develop ourselves, our personality, our perspective, our worldview of seeing Mm. things. Because if we don't focus on that, we're going to get into really big trouble as humanity. The, the problem for me is that we've we've developed our society faster than we've developed ourselves. We're mm-hmm. getting to a stage where the fewer and fewer people are at a sufficiently vertical development level that they can actually cope with the complexity. Because complexity requires you to be comfortable with uncertainty. And that requires a certain way of looking at the world that is not evident. And uh, and so somehow we need to address how do we become more aware of what we need to do in order to develop this side of ourselves, the vertical development part. And that's a whole, I mean, we could talk about that for hours because that's a, that's a big box yeah. to open. But, but that is, for me, one of the things that somehow it's the elephant in the room and we're not talking about it. Yeah, so, and it's so interesting because you can, of course, acquire skills, leadership skills, technical skills, skills about yes. an understanding about AI. But actually what we often forget is actually how do we actually lift ourselves so we can lift others, I often say. And it becomes very evident interviewing people here on the podcast when you start talking with them they all wonder really really where they just in the, the silent background singermans you know honestberger and so on these companies that the, the founders the ceos are actually working more on themselves than anything else like really really to expand their own mind 
and control of themselves because they know they're going to be hit by things they don't know about today. And one of the things I picked up from them on that journey was actually read when I was quite young. I had a professor at university that talked about the Stoics in, in, in leadership philosophy. And I came a bit back and one of the things I picked up in the, in the world as accelerated was Stoic philosophy was actually talk about your only job is to prepare yourself for the future death, uncertainty and actually yeah. be ready for it and actually therefore yeah. you have to work on yourself every day that's your job yeah. that's your number one job to be a good human is to work on yourself yeah. and a lot of people don't understand really the what what is the concept of vertical and, and and i like my favorite short explanation because and it is really short it's just it's the ability to take ever increasing complex perspectives more and more complex perspective when you when we are born we only have one perspective it's me i'm hungry and that's and some people never get any further i mean but but so it's this ability to start seeing a much bigger picture and as the world gets more complex we need that that was the perfect place to end this amazing conversation. You said there's so much more we have to explore. And I'm sure we're going to have another opportunity, Mike, as we move oh, into fun. the future, future. But where can people find out more about you, connect with you if they want to maybe they have some questions happy now? happy to connect on LinkedIn. I'm very yep. happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. I like that. That's my favorite. It's my only sort of really social platform in that sense. And otherwise, MikeHonan.com is, is where you find anything about me if you want to know anything about me. Great. It's very simple. Thank you for taking time out just before you go on holiday to have this conversation. Thank you, Michael. I send you power and energy for the journey ahead. And I, <laughs> I, I look forward to, to continue the conversation. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that you're listening. In. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate or give a review or subscribe to one of our channels. Which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is the key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools that help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Connective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!